Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. All right, we now have six days of basketball in the books. Every team has played at least two games at this point. And as I'm always flummoxed by, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll watch one of every team. It's like, oh, wait a minute. No, you can't really do that because... You'll think like, oh, yeah, I can just watch another game of two teams I haven't seen. It's like, no, actually, it's not really possible to do that. Like you run into another team that you've already seen once. And so uh, despite my best efforts, I was not able to watch a full game of every single team, but got most of them in the books. And so we're just going to talk about some of our observations on these teams. Uh, Maybe not quite as like just straight up game focus breakdown, but more just what we're able to take away for some of these teams from the games we watched over the weekend. Where should we begin, Danny? I think we're going to begin in Oklahoma City because you and I separately and together watched parts of, I think, two different contests of theirs. And the one that I focused on was their game against the Cleveland Cavaliers, which was a a fun, weird one. Um, You get a lot of those early season. Um, The Cavs were up 10. This is just to let you know where it's going. The Cavs were up 10 with two and a half to go. And OKC comes back and actually takes the lead with more than a minute to go. It was a, a wild comeback. We'll get there. Um, and OKC, just they've, they've been a really notable, interesting team so far that we haven't really discussed. So I thought they'd be a good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. I, I thought uh, I didn't catch all of that game, but I saw the first half. And my biggest takeaway early when Oklahoma City was up double, double digits most of that first half was uh first of all Darius Garland didn't play in this one yeah uh but so uh, and Cleveland has some injury issues uh, Donovan Mitchell then didn't play in their loss to the Pacers on the second night of a back-to-back Mitchell had 43 points in 42 minutes in this one uh and I thought Chet Holmgren just looked really good in the second quarter as a rim protector uh, he was just causing big problems for any Cav who was trying to finish on the inside including Evan Mobley uh who had 14 points so it was only five out of 12 Mobley would actually come back with over 30 points uh, in a losing effort uh, against the Pacers the next night uh but that was one thing that I took away and the other thing was just that Cleveland had absolutely no answers for Shea Gilgis Alexander in that first quarter and our first half I should say none whatsoever and I mean in the Thunder's first two games because the tracking stats were all in for that Gildas Alexander had 54 drives. That's more than 20 a game. That's 22, uh, or sorry, that's like 27 a game. And no one else was averaging more than 19 per contest as of Saturday morning. And I think that hasn't significantly changed since then. And he was getting to spots, the the kind of the herky-jerky, unpredictable nature, which we talked about a lot last season, of his, of his handle and his shooting mechanics and all that were giving 
were giving fits to basically all of Cleveland's perimeter defenders, and they have some guys who are pretty good there. I mean, Levert just couldn't make heads or tails of Shea. Um, Okoro had some problems with it. And going back to Chet Holmgren, something that I noticed, and then Jared Dubin put together a video on it, was that Holmgren had seven credited blocks in the 108-105 victory over Cleveland, and at least a significant majority, it might have been all of them, were blocked and stayed in bounds, which that mm. that opens things up. You know, first of all, it, it doesn't it doesn't guarantee that you will get possession, but it also doesn't guarantee that you won't. You know, like as you know, knocking it five yard five rows back that makes you feel good potentially, but it, it means that it's going to be the other team's ball. That I want to keep an eye on that and, and like really, how does OKC benefit from that sort of an approach? But well, well can, can I talk a little bit about that too? I mean, of course. That- He's not like a Skywalker. You know, the guy I always think of who would just like send shot blocks way out of bounds is Kenyon Martin, the original Mm -hmm. Kenyon Martin. Like he would just fly over, pop off the ground and just like send it into the 19th row. And Chet doesn't block shots like that. Like he is a lot of times on the ball or he's just like coming coming in from behind. And he's almost getting like kind of Tim Duncan style of blocks. You know, Tim would get a, a lot of blocks without jumping. And Chet's kind of that way. And Tim also would keep his blocks in bounds because he's really getting it pretty close to the guy's hands, like hand on top of the ball, rather than, you know, kind of once it's left the guy's hand, like slamming it off the backboard or out of bounds or something like that. So, yeah, the style of shot blocks that he has, uh, I think those are more likely to stay in bounds because he's kind of just staying solid more. He's not like skywalking to go get these. Like when it's way up in the air, it's harder to keep it in bounds. It is. And so I want to keep, you know, like we're seeing Chet Holmgren, they don't have any of big man Jalen Williams. So the rotation's a little bit different in terms of interior players, if you want to even call them that. But I also thought that particularly the first half was a good showcase of Holmgren's offensive game. He had a nice dribble drive and a three. And then in the, in the mid third quarter, Holmgren had a drive Euro step finger roll sequence that was pretty impressive. And my early take going back to his Gonzaga film and some of the Summer League stuff as well was that Holmgren, I thought he was a little bit underappreciated as an offensive talent and maybe at times a little overappreciated as a defensive talent. I've grown to become more of a believer in his defense during the limited regular season NBA action he's had. But the idea that Holmgren, he makes decisions quickly. He generally makes pretty good ones. And he has a lot of the skill set that works for a complimentary big. Like, I love some of the stuff that OKC is already doing with Holmgren and like kind of the handoff game. And you think about somebody like Al Horford, who it didn't necessarily take him a long time to pick it up, but it took the league a long time to incorporate all the things that guys like that could do well. And I think with Holmgren, especially because his handle was actually pretty tight for somebody his size, there are ways to incorporate that, even if he's never in all likelihood going to be a number one option. Yeah, and he, he makes some quick decisions. Like I think he's actually been at his best attacking closeouts, and he's been shooting it well enough uh, to earn a closeout. As I noted in preseason, you know he's not like the quickest release necessarily, but it helps when you're seven one in that regard. And guys are respecting it, and he's kind of tightened up that spin move. There is a little bit more space than say in a summer league type of setting, so uh, he's looked better there. One of the things that I was so interested you mentioned his, just his overall offensive game is, okay, what if teams switch pick and roll with Chet? Number one, he hasn't even really been used that much 
uh, as a, a screener. True. I, I thought that was something that would be used a lot in particular. You know, he's only got three possessions uh, rolling to the basket and then another two where he slipped the pick. Uh, and that's now through three games, uh, including their game against Denver. So I was like, well, okay, what if they run pick and roll and then they switch? Like, is he going to be able to beat guys in the in the post? Uh, he has zero post-up possessions so far, which is one fewer than he has as a pick and roll ball handler. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd like to see him do a little more on the offensive glass, only two putback possessions so far but i think pretty clearly to me would you say he's been the most impactful rookie as far as affecting winning so far i mean victor one had some pretty good performances but yeah i think that i think that's probably fair i'm i'm not encyclopedic on it this early because i haven't seen you know enough of everybody but it seems it's definitely seems fair somebody else on the thunder i wanted to mention this was a big lou dort offensive game he was five sorry six of nine on twos but three of four on threes and got to the line a fair amount so he had 25 points and it was like i was like oh you know they're going to him a lot but it wasn't the best jalen williams performance he was four of 14 from the field and it's not to me like lou dort turning over a new leaf not that they need him to but you know when he's hot when he's running well in cleveland they have evan mobley right now but jared allen didn't play in this game as well we talked about the absence of darius garland so there isn't a ton of like, you know, rim protection and the, the supplemental stuff can be there. So if Dork can get can get to the basket or if his jump shot is falling as it was in this contest, then then you lean on him. But something I want to give Mark Degnault and the Thunder credit for is that he's had two weaker performances offensively in their win against the Bulls and their loss against Denver. In those games, he didn't take a ton of shots. We're not getting the like three of 15 Dylan Brooks specials, the game that he was going well, he took more shots and the games that he wasn't more modest. Yeah, it hasn't been a dominating start. I, I thought he had his best game today against uh, the Nuggets in uh, what was a quite a losing effort uh, <laughs> in the end, uh, as we'll get to momentarily here. Let me see what else I had from this one. Um, I had a couple things. Yeah, go ahead, um, please. So Vasily Misic did not play in their first game. We're like, oh, where's he going to fit the rotation? And then he played against the Cavs and the general role that he filled was next to Shea Gildas Alexander. They, I, I thought they might use him in some of the other lineups, you know, maybe give him the reins instead of Giddy or something else. And I, I think that's possible. Like, I think Misich hit a three in, in his six minutes, and like, it's a possible way to use him. And it's going to be a challenge for Dagnall. Like, they didn't sign Misich just for the fun of it. I think they intend to use him. But what is his best role? And with the Thunder, you run into this challenge because of not only Shea and Giddy, but also Jalen Williams, of who makes sense playing on ball, who makes sense playing off ball, which of their more ball handler types makes sense together. And Misich is another piece that's thrown into that complicated puzzle. Yeah, Misich, uh, you mentioned he didn't play in the first game, and he did play today against Denver and had some okay moments. Like, he is known as a pick-and-roll operator, 6'5", can shoot the ball, he had a couple of aggressive three-pointers so far this season, and but really, you know, great pass and pick-and-roll. So when they first signed him, I was like, oh, that's it. They can run pick-and-roll with him and Chet on the second unit, and it hasn't necessarily worked out that way. They Those two guys had one pick-and-roll hookup today that I thought looked pretty good, but as I mentioned, you know, they've not been really running kind of conventional pick-and-roll with Chet. Instead, I think they've elected more often to space out Chet, let him attack closeouts, and I'm not saying that's even the wrong strategy necessarily either because they have all this other guard-to-guard pick-and-roll game and if you can space out their bigs and also get some room protection on the other end 
that can be pretty interesting. I mean, that's that's why I found OKC to kind of be my most fascinating team early and why I've watched so much of them. Uh, and to that end, like, what are some of the lineups that make sense? A year ago, generally, Josh Giddy would be staggered from Chejo Gilgis-Alexander. They haven't necessarily gotten that run. Instead, it's been Jalen Williams running things at the start of the second and fourth quarter. And he actually played with Misich. They've also gone the last two games with no backup center. They went to Olivier Saar in their first game because uh, Jay Will is out with a hamstring issue. And uh, they even, we had a Poku appearance for a short time <laughs> against Denver today. So, but that's been interesting. I, I think they've kind of wanting to empower J-Dub a little bit more to get to the basket in those circumstances. You know, he's kind of still been hard downhill driving. Like he hasn't really done hardly any pick and roll stuff either uh, and, and not as much passing. Now, Giddy, you know, I, I'm, I would like to maybe see a little more spacing around Shea, but it hasn't really shown up that much yet the way it did last year. I think having Holmgren out there kind of helps too with a lot of those groups in the starting lineup that uh, Shea certainly was not uh, struggling to score in this Cleveland game. He had a rough one against Denver, as we'll talk about. But I think the other thing I want to talk about with Giddy is he is easily, I would say at this point, the league's best inbound passer, in part because oh, they give it to him well, every time. Him and one other guy he played against today and Jokic, because Jokic had that unbelievable <laughs> yeah, inbound but, but pass. But they don't they generally they don't, don't use him have that him way. be the inbounder. Right. Though, right. Like Giddy, I mean, he is he's a good passer on the move, certainly, but where he's incredibly lethal is when he's just has two hands in the ball just at a standstill. He doesn't have to worry about protecting his dribble. So that works great for sideline out bounds, baseline yeah. out bounds. Uh he but like every game it's like he's just throwing a layup pass from a sideline out of bounds. Like you don't see that. Like he had one for a dunk and and one just like right by a guy's ear for a layup just in the second quarter of this Cavs game. By the way, as an aside, you guys know how much I hate using the foul to give when you're not in a compromised situation, right? Like the idea being, hey, all right, if, if the guy's going to blow by you, yeah, go ahead and grab him and reset it. But I think that if you've got five seconds left or eight seconds left, you're actually giving the other team the advantage by fouling because A, they can bring in all their offensive guys, which the Thunder did, and B, you can set call us that play and Josh Giddey will throw a, a sideline out bounds pass for a layup that he never would have been in a position to do if you hadn't given the foul to give so i i hate the foul to give uh it's just one of these kind of old school oh it's so smart it's so smart it's like the guy was just dribbling up top like you didn't they're going to be more disorganized and you were going to be more locked in and they were just going to go to like some late clock iso at the end of the quarter now you let them actually run a play with five seconds left eight seconds left i hate that <laughs> uh in any event let's see what else i had well here. so i wanted yeah. to go a little bit i don't want to go possession by possession but their their run to to take the lead late oh, yeah. against the Cavs. Yeah, I, I missed this. I actually want to know what happened. So it, it starts out they're down they're down ten with two twenty five to go and standard kind of early procedure. Shea drives and they the Cavs collapse a little bit. Lou Dort hits an open three and that that moves it down seven. And so you're like, okay, a team comes back ten points in a minute and a half. You're like, oh, that has to be everything went right for them. Well, right after that, a nice block by Chet Holmgren on Donovan Mitchell, but. He got out of the play, and you you think of this usually with where like the the center is is unavailable then, and Mobley gets the follow up dunk. So then it goes back up to a nine point lead, but then you have two threes in a row. Shea hits one, and then Jalen Williams hits one, 
And then one of the things that we'll have to watch for Cleveland this year is that Mobley made a nice pass to Max Struess. And Struess, he has trouble sometimes finishing around the basket when there's a when there's a good contest. He had a couple of flubs in transition and semi-transition earlier in the game. And so, like, that was a reasonably, it wasn't like a perfect chance, but it was a reasonably good one. So they're, so then OKC is only down three with a minute 15. Holmgren hits what I would best describe as a trail three. It wasn't like the for, the formalized version of it, but it was pretty close to that. And that's a really fun element for this Thunder team is that you have to kind of track their players a little bit more aggressively. And Giddy's such a good passer. Shea is a good passer where they'll find Holmgren if he's the last guy. So they're like the idea basically as a big, think about the, think about what your job is if you're Evan Mobley and you're facing Oklahoma City in a transition or semi-transition. Shea Gildas-Alexander is your a your priority A and B. Like he's such a good driver and everything else. But if Mobley's if sorry, if 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 Mobley's trying to defend that and Holmgren is just kind of doing his own thing, he might you may just be conceding a wide open shot. Communication's really hard. And so that's what led to an open uh, a trail three that tied the game. Then the Cavs stalled out again. Dort had a drive and finish. They were up two. And then at that point, like I mean we're getting close. I think it was about 30 seconds left in the game. The Cavs were forcing up shots. Mitchell had a contested pull up. Didn't hit that. And then Jalen Williams. I I mean, the crazy thing was they were down 10 with 225 left and actually led by four with like 30 seconds left. Right. Yeah. It's not only that they tied it in a minute and a half. It's that they then took the lead by four. And and then Cleveland didn't have a timeout. So basically, Shea Shea gets two free throws. There was an auto foul. And the Cavs didn't have a timeout. So they didn't really have a way to get the ball up. And with, I think it was like four seconds left. So then they just didn't they just didn't get a shot up to to potentially tie the game and that's that's one of the really hard things about timeout management there is that you you need in order to get a good shot up with no timeout you need a lot more time than 5 seconds practically i mean you could get lucky but if the other team is executing which the thunder pretty much always do man i just love american giants just an amazing clothing company i was reminded again of how much i love it when i drove from california to montana over the all-star break and you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas you're like well i don't want to wear like my jacket in the car but then i get out to fill gas i'm going to be freezing but the american giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm it's not too hot as well so i was able to wear it in the car not be too hot step out of the car and still be warm enough when i was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that i didn't feel like i needed my jacket even when it was cold outside things are amazingly durable i proposed to my wife wearing an american giant hoodie in the grand canyon almost seven years ago i still own that same hoodie i still wear it constantly and american giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us anyone who's seen our youtube videos knows that i don't wear formal stuff all the time so when it's time 
to dress up rather than dress down i highly recommend inochino they were the official outfitter of my wedding i got my tux from there all my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well i felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly because when you go somewhere else you're not going to get something that's made for you so why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you and not only does indochino have the suits that made them famous but now they've got everything blazers pants women's wear outerwear designed and made for you hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from european wools linen cottons tons of colors tons of patterns you can customize things like the lapel the vents the pockets and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style level up your game with indochino go to indochino.com use the code capspace user in our capspace we talk about all the time here on the program you get 10 percent off any purchase of 399 dollars or more that's 10 percent off at indochino i-n-d-o-c-h-i-n-o indochino.com and don't forget that capspace code to let them know that you came from us yeah, I do like uh, some of their late game stuff to be sure, but no late game stuff was even <laughs> remotely relevant today as the Denver Nuggets, who are now 3-0, and just ran through the Oklahoma City Thunder. I was very interested, of course, to see Chet Holmgren against Nikola Jokic and seeing Jokic have to guard Chet on the perimeter and stay in front of him on the drive and you know what would Jokic's post-ups look like and not that I was expecting Chet to give him any problems because basically nobody does but it was a very much a oh yeah hot shot rookie you want to find out about this dude I can't wait until Victor plays uh, against Jokic although he surely won't guard him yeah the matchups will be different yeah I mean that's what I really like about Chet is like he's willing to battle he's willing to play center like you don't hear any of this just like oh well I want to protect him and play four like no he's gonna play center and he might play a little bit next to Jalen Williams but they just have too many good wings right I mean that's part of why some of these guys like Victor are playing four it's like all right do you really have like that many awesome wings if you're San Antonio where it's like you, like those guys need to play so they're gonna push him to center but yeah I mean Jokic comes out right at the beginning quick spin uses his shoulder Chet you know is probably pretty used to like blocking other guys jump hooks like Jokic just too good using his body next time same move fake step through le- nice left-handed hook maybe you heard the my criticism the other day that that's like the one place he's mortal is with the the left-handed hook going right shoulder uh no problems with that this time and I mean, it was just, you never felt like Denver was, like, dominating from, like, oh, they're just getting, like, so hot from the outside or something in that first half. They ended up shooting pretty well, but they weren't doing it on the back of great three-point shooting. Instead, it was just running every single option of the offense. And they had, they're trying to hide Shea Gilgis-Alexander on Aaron Gordon. Well, nope, Aaron Gordon got, like, a few post-up fouls, got Shea Gilgis-Alexander in foul trouble. Uh, Jokic just on the move that OKC was like trying to actually just like switch off ball screens for Jokic and Jokic just had such incredible command he's open like he feels that like someone has left his body off of the screen and so they just lob it to him like imagine him like kind of posting up and they lob it to him but Jokic he just feels that there's no one behind him so basically he just almost like does a go and catch 
from like the post and just changes the angle. The guy who got screened can't get back in front of him. He gets an easy layup. Obviously, his passing was awesome. Then things kind of stagnate a little bit in the third. You think maybe OKC will get back into it. Then Michael Porter Jr. gets hot. He makes three three three-pointers like with guys right in his face. It was just another, you know, Jamal Murray, his matchup against Shea ended up not really being that close and Murray was working off the ball like the Denver was just getting a good shot on every single possession and then even sometimes when they couldn't you had shot makers like Murray and Porter Jr. it was just like you felt like OKC was prepared yeah go ahead well one stat on that OKC I mean I think they generally have a very good defense but they Denver put a 117 first shot half court offensive rating on them in this game that's for the whole game for the whole game for that's like not including offensive rebounds, not including fast breaks. Like I thought, I was I would thought maybe that would be the high for like a half or something, but it, they did it for the whole game. Uh, yeah, it was it was really pretty incredible. Let's see if I had anything else that really stuck out. Oh, I, I wanted to ask you about I wanted because yeah. this wasn't a game I watched closely, and maybe it's because he went to UCLA, but. Peyton Watson, 17 points. I think that's a career high for him. How did he look? Yeah, I, I had turned it off by the time he scored. Oh, okay. So that was, that was, it was garbage. Like, I only watched through three quarters because it was a 25-point game. Fair enough. After three. Um, but, like, he's been getting, like, one good block every game, at least, uh, as a rim protector. And I think one of the biggest things I can point to about him is just the overall tenor of that second unit. I mean, it's really looking good right now. Reggie Jackson is looking fine. You know, we'll have to see where he's at two months from now, like how many shots he's actually making. But, you know, in terms of how he's fitting in, not taking that many bad shots, uh, like he's holding up from just like a physical standpoint defensively, even though, you know, he's probably their worst defender. But, I mean, one of the things for Denver is they just don't really have anyone that you can pick on particularly well. Like, I mean, that's one of the biggest things that's so underrated about Darren Bruce, like Michael Porter Jr. is not someone that you just go after anymore. Jamal Murray, I mean, when he came into the league, I remember George Hill like posted him up over and over again and like basically almost fouled him out of a game. And like, you know, that would obviously never happen to him. Like he's okay. All right. If he's got to guard LeBron James or something, yeah, you probably have to send help. But he's still like 6'5", 210, like pretty big guard. And and he's not going to like back down from people. And so, yeah, I mean, if Reggie Jackson is your worst defender and he's playing in some of these bench units, like that's that's not really a problem. Uh, I, I thought overall their defense, particularly in the first half, was really good. Now, Che wasn't getting some of his usual calls where he kind of attacks the shoulder of the guy who's not in legal guarding position. And like they, he's a tough guy to referee in that regard. Like Shea just had a miserable first half. You would think that Shea would be perfectly set up to uh, attack Jokic. I think they actually, quite frankly, I would say that maybe they should have run more pick and roll than they did to actually get two on the ball because a lot of what they were doing was just spread the floor try to take your man and denver has pretty decent individual defenders and they also have guys with a lot of length who can rotate so i wasn't sure that that was actually the best strategy but you know Shea's not he's not like an unbelievable pick and roll player like i think that's at some point particularly when you have a guy with the versatility of chet i think just more a more conventional pick and roll attack is something that they should have in their arsenal uh at some point to play out of um but yeah Peyton Watson looks pretty good defensively and like he gets out in transition he's just another big target for Jokic so he kind of combines some of the aspects in terms of just the way he moves and and in transition of Aaron Gordon and Michael Porter Jr and the other thing I really liked for Denver in the opener when they went with Zeke Naji they really were small right they had Christian Braun at the three Christian Braun at the three now they've actually changed that up to put Braun at the two sometimes or just have him out and to bring 
bring in Michael Porter Jr. to play next to Peyton Watson and Zeke Najee. So now if you're going to be switching with Najee, which they did, and you know that was effective enough, you've got those two other 6'10 guys, both who have like a, a little bit of bounce, can rebound as well. And now you're huge across the front line, just as they are in their starting group. And then that can kind of protect things a, a little bit more. You know, they might go with like then Murray and Jackson in the backcourt with that group. And then Christian Brown would come in and play with Peyton Watson and Jokic. Because I, I like that feeling too, because you're just, you get another offensive player on the floor and Jokic, he's going to, especially against a team like the Thunder, that's too undersized to deal with him and doesn't really have any secondary room protection. Like Jokic will just, he doesn't need shooters around him <laughs> with a lot <laughs> of these groups, bench units in particular. Anything else in this one? I know. I know. We also you watched more of uh, Denver's win over Memphis. By the way, the Grizzlies zero three after their Saturday loss to the Washington Wizards. Um, thoughts on? Th- I don't want to push you there, but do you, any do you thoughts on that game? Uh, well, let me let me finish up here quickly. Oh, sorry. Cason Wallace for OKC, like his spot up jumper looks good. He's looked fine defensively. Now, worth noting that OKC, all right, they looked absolutely amazing when they basically made 50% of their threes over the first two games. And then they were 7 of 32 in this game. But I mean, they could have made, it felt like they could have made 32 out of 32 from three and they wouldn't, they wouldn't have been competitive because Denver was just that good. I mean, Denver, we'll see if they, if some injuries hit or, or if they start to get a little bored and we'll see how much they're going to get pushed by some of the teams below them in the West. Like no one has quite really emerged yet to be playing incredibly well in part due to phoenix's injury issues but i mean this feels like a team that like the bench stuff is working so far like it's been way better than it was last year when it was just such a major problem like this feels like a team that if they really wanted to put the the pedal to the floor and if they stayed healthy like could get into the 60s maybe even like mid 60s and wins like that's just how comfortable everything is looking right now i mean maybe you're um it feels maybe like an overreaction early but they also completely dominated the playoffs last year as well um and yeah they had that nice win on the road against memphis they led by about 15 most of the way memphis got back within one and then an aaron gordon alley-oop dunk put him put denver back up three under 30 minutes or sorry 30 seconds to go and denver was able to hold on uh i mean i'm not gonna have as much on that game i think uh Jaron Jackson Jr. again, like he he had a miserable opening game. I didn't see their game against the Wizards, but just didn't look like he was really able to be someone that you could run a lot through. And they're just very reliant even on Derrick Rose in some of these lineups. And Rose just doesn't, I mean, at his age, not a surprise, like he's not, doesn't have the burst to get by guys. He did like put Aaron Gordon in the mix and hit like a rim in pull up jumper from the free throw line. At one point, that was pretty late. They tried going with Rose, Smart and Bain all together. I will say at least like the, they also closed out with Zaire Williams and he at least looks bouncy again. Like he, he looks athletically like where he was as a rookie. He's like popping off the ground for alley-oops off of two feet. So you can at least feel pretty good about that. Well, and, uh, and also for yeah. Memphis, like I mean, it's going to be a while, but some of the like balance of their shot creation will happen once they get John Morant back where, you know, like the having Smart and Bain and like the, they and and they only played 31 and 32 minutes respectively in their loss to Denver. That that puts a lot on Derrick Rose's shoulders. Ideally you will have less on his shoulders moving forward and like you could potentially solve that when when he's available and stuff with like Luke Kennard and and you could go a couple other directions. But like yeah, I agree with you that right now Derrick Rose has to do a lot and that's that's too much to ask of him right now. 
Yeah. Now Memphis will look better when they hit some shots too. I mean, losing to the Wiz uh, and being blown out by them for a lot of the game. But the, I was on the second night of a back-to-back. David Locke noted that every team that's played the second night of a back-to-back against a team that didn't play the previous night has lost, and many of them pretty badly, including Locke's Jazz uh, to a Suns team without Booker or Beal. Uh, yeah, so the, and the Grizz still missing Santi Aldama. They're just kind of going with the Laravia, Roddy, Zaire Williams group. And, and I think Zaire has probably been the best of those guys. But I can't say any of them have looked like amazing as far as helping the Grizzlies win basketball games right now. So it's a it feels a long way away at the moment for an 0-3 team from that team two years ago that dominated with Morant out. And Tyus Jones, while I think Marcus Smart is a better player than him, I think it was fine making that move. He's a better offensive player in the regular season and then Marcus Smart is like running the offense and not turning it over or making open threes. Probably better at pushing it in transition as well. So yeah, we'll, we'll lock in on the Grizzlies a little bit more. Desmond Bain, I think, has looked pretty decent. To me, he's really the only Grizz who's playing particularly well in this first three-game stint. Where do you want to go next here? We could go to uh, another uh, to a game that has team, teams that are, let's say, still developing. Um, the Pistons played the Hornets. And ended up being a 111-99 victory for Detroit. And we talked a little bit about their struggles early, though they, of course, got in close against against the Heat. But what I found most intriguing, and I would argue encouraging about Pistons-Hornets, was we got this, like, taster on the theory of how some of the young guys can work, ideally, you know, later on when they're better and their teams are better. And I'll give a couple of examples of that. So... Brandon Miller, I thought he did a really nice job in the Pistons game as a play finisher. So wasn't necessarily generating all of those advantages, but had a couple of nice dunks, had a huge above the break three later created by a, a, a mellow ball drive if memory serves. And so that that part of it, you know, the you talked about like the guy his size who could dribble, pass and shoot. And it's not as much the dribble part of it right now, but those are important parts of his game that bode well for the future. And then yeah, I think Miller, oh, Miller's looked pretty solid so so far. I, I I would agree with that. Like he had a big dunk as the Hornets were trying to make a run down the end that ended up not being close. But I think he's competed defensively on the glass. Like I think his shot looks like about what you would hope it would be at this point. Like he still doesn't have the two foot explosion. He also got called for a like push off P shove off when he tried to like drive baseline, couldn't beat the guy and had to shove him to create separation for his mid ranger. So, I mean, that was his ability as a potential isolation score is one of the bigger reasons that I didn't feel like he had the upside, at least in this draft to be worth that number two pick. But I, I think he's been about what you would have hoped for so far as the Hornets. They of course won uh, against the Hawks on opening night. Uh, and then, ended up losing to the Pistons but I, I thought the Pistons like their defense looks pretty good it so does far. I mean and that's and Cade looks pretty good like that's really all you can hope for from them at this point and frankly given their personnel is available when you consider that Monte Morris and Boyan are both out that's really the only way you are going to win games is just Cade and defense and they're two and one they swept it back to back they also got a big game against the Hornets from Alec Burks 24 points in 31 minutes also had a couple of assists and he was plus 28 in 31 minutes in a game that has seen one by 12 which is pretty impressive and Going back to the young guys, though, um, two Pistons that I thought showed those little flashes. Um, Jaden Ivey, coming off the bench, playing fewer minutes than Killian Hayes, who was starting, and that that's the defensive idea Monty Williams is going with. Ivey did a great job against Charlotte, pushing in transition, being that dynamo. Now, our theory of the case originally was 
that's a good fit with Cade because Cade isn't always the best at pushing the floor. And so you can have Ivy do that early stage initiation. Then you have Cade Cunningham to do the later, you know, half court style stuff. And there was a little bit of that, but it was also Ivy helping bring the identity. He did some of that paired with Alec Burks instead of doing it paired with Cade Cunningham. And then Asar Thompson, who was starting for, for the Hornets, or sorry, for the Pistons against the Hornets and all their other games. I still really love his mentality, and you get that with being a, a willing passer. He had one to Burks, and I think there was another one that didn't become an assist to Killian Hayes, where it's just like most guys would get a little bit tunnel vision, you know, kind of driving around, trying to figure out what they're going to do, and he's seeing what the better play is. And the other way that Asar Thompson can make that work is as an opportunistic cutter. And those cuts would be even more devastating if the Pistons had more overall spacing. But the idea of understanding where the play is going, understanding all that, which also helps him as a defensive player, that can give you some opportunities. And with Kate Cunningham in particular, he'll he's done a pretty good job finding Asar when those cuts are successful. Yeah. Now I will note Asar doesn't really have an understanding of what to do when he doesn't have like an open look right at the basket. Sure. Uh, he was two for nine in this game and two for eight on two pointers. And like there's a few times where there's something that I noted too, in contrast to a men, obviously they're quite similar, but uh, that Asar's finishing just wasn't quite as developed. He just doesn't have that same level of aggression. And uh, a men will talk about him a little bit later, but Asar. It's going to be interesting to see where he ends up, but like he's earning these 30 minutes, particularly with Boyan out uh, per game. And just because he's out there defending and he can pass a little bit and he'll rebound, he'll get out in transition. He had four offensive rebounds in this game. So he, he's been, I wasn't expecting that he would start. And I think this approach that Monty Williams is going to, he's kind of been in this building up a young team mode twice before and, and of course did so well with it in Phoenix. And you mentioned how Killian Hayes is starting and playing more than Jaden Ivey. And that's despite the fact that Jaden Ivey was 8 of 14 for 18 points in this game. And Killian Hayes was 2 of 10 for 6 points. But I think this is a long-term thing. We noted Monty Williams has been said over and over again. He's got the six-year contract. And I'm not sure that playing Killian Hayes more than Jaden Ivey is the best thing to win games right now. And Jaden Ivey is also, in theory, the more important player for the future of the Pistons like Killian Hayes just isn't good enough offensively obviously they didn't come to an extension agreement with him it didn't seem like there was much there so but I think this is just the long game of like hey you're just gonna have to defend better than this Jaden Ivey and, and I thought Ivey looked really good you mentioned pushing and transition I thought his pick and roll chemistry was pretty solid like uh, Ivey is not really yeah. throwing great passes out to the perimeter although you know, do they have anyone actually make those shots maybe not but I think going back to summer league he's starting to show a pretty good understanding of how to get the ball to the roll man and because he gets downhill so quickly and is a good finisher he's able to draw the defense over uh, enough that that pass has been available to him something that struck me during pistons hornets was and this you could argue is a vindication of some of what money williams has been doing rotationally charlotte had a 150 offensive rating in transition which is phenomenal but only a 76 in the half court and it's true they're not like a perfect half court offense team they're relying a lot on lamello lamello missed a ton of shots in this game he made some free throws 
But the idea for the Pistons of, you know, like they're, they're, yeah, it's true. Their offense and their starting five isn't going to be great. And maybe if they replace one of those guys with Bojan, it'll look better. But they are, I, I think they are defending well. And, and all of that wasn't shooting luck, though the Hornets shot incredibly poorly in the game overall. Yeah, I thought the Pistons defense, just the overall pressure that they provided was good. Like lots of denials out on the floor. Hayes was part of that. Thompson was part of that. Uh, making Lamelo Ball work hard to get the ball in the half court and Ball struggled to four of 17 shooting and two of 10 on twos uh charlotte was seven of 28 on threes overall and i at one point i was like is the pistons defense good or is just the charlotte offense really bad i didn't think that charlotte's offense looked great against the hawks either i thought the hawks were kind of bailing them out by putting two on the ball like to me i'm i'm gonna just say all right we're gonna guard lamella ball and pick and roll two on two and and see how that goes uh or force him to to make great passes now ball at least did get to the foul line where he had kind of regressed yes. it seemed like or at least stagnated the last couple of years so that was good 10 to 12 but that was about all that looked good for him and i thought that ball i'm not seeing the great passes from him you know a lot of people have noted that last year was kind of an unserious year for him they were out of it by the time he comes back from ankle injury number one and he's just out there kind of gunning and you know he did have nine assists but i would just i'm not and like his transitions stuff is pretty good but i'm just not seeing the level of operation that i want from him in the half court and you mentioned how bad their half court offense was in this game and that's the the one of the big lines between like what lamello ball is has done in his worst moments and what trey young has done in his best is that you need that player to be your offensive engine in the half court and to be able to generate good shots for themselves and others and Charlotte did a better job of that a couple years ago than last year, which was an absolute train wreck. One of the other wild stats from this game, and it was another one of those I saw it, so I need to look it up. Charlotte had 11 offensive rebounds and a 57 offensive rating after those offensive rebounds, which some of that was, you know, just like bad luck or like you're doing, you know, playing a little bit of volleyball and, um, a lot of their offensive rebounds weren't actually by their like big men, so they're putting it back for a dunk. Thor only had one. It was more like Lamelo grabbing a couple. Brandon Miller had a couple, but that is just kind of weird. And and the Pistons, you know, they keep trying out possessions, but it's like some of that that I'll just you know kind of file away as, as nonsense unless it just keeps on continuing. The Isaiah Stewart as a four man experiment for the Pistons, like Stewart's, he'll get some stuff inside kind of as a garbage man, but he's playing exclusively at the four and rather than them bringing him in as a well, backup and, center they usually and, are going to yeah go ahead well and note he's playing exclusively at the four and that's not because they're playing james wiseman so wiseman is currently they're describing yeah. it as a left digits brain but before that it was being listed as a dnp coach's decision so it is it is basically that the the bigs that monty williams is playing are duran and stewart in the starting lineup and then marvin bagley as the only real big coming off the bench and I think Bagley's been effective. I, sure. I mentioned that uh, he, uh, Jay Nivey had, did a good job finding the role man. Bagley was part of that. He actually had a, a nice verticality play defensively on LaMelo. So again, like the Pistons haven't exactly like beaten a murderer's row of teams so far, played a murderer's row of teams. They're competitive against mm-hmm. Miami, who hasn't looked great either. But it's still like the, they look pretty good. And like, especially when they actually get like Alec Burks on the floor and just having like another real like professional player. I mean, they won this game with Cade Cunningham fouling out in 24 minutes 
and having five turnovers, only four thirteen. Cade's been good in their other two games, but uh, was not yeah. in this one. Well, and continuing, yeah. Go so I wanted to pull something on Bagley because we were talking about him. Eleven yeah. points, six rebounds in fourteen and a half minutes a game in the early going. And you don't want to focus necessarily on cutting stats for somebody who we've at times harped on his defensive deficiencies, but he has been productive when he's been on the floor. And it's not like the Pistons have been terrible in his minutes. He was plus ten in that win over the Bulls on Sunday. Or sorry, Saturday. A couple other yeah, a couple other Charlotte things. This was the matchup of the two second year centers that Charlotte could have selected. Recall they had picks 13 and 15. They traded 13 first to the Knicks and then it was rotted to the Pistons. I'm not sure that Charlotte knew who was being drafted there, even that it would be the Pistons, but Charlotte took Mark Williams. Mark Williams uh, had a very nice game in the opener and Mark Williams had one very loud bucket all over Marvin Bagley's head with a two-hander, but he also had five fouls and was one of four in 21 minutes and really just struggled to keep his hands up in terms of verticality. That is just the number one thing for him that he's struggled with in this game. Like he was in position and would bring his hands down and commit fouls. And so both Mark Williams and Nick Richards were deep into foul trouble. They ended up going with PJ Washington, some JT Thor at center, and that didn't work out particularly well for them, I would say. Uh, Gordon Hayward, I he used to be just another Hornet who really like struggled to finish on the interior. And Detroit has pretty good size, but he used to have such a great game, like slowing down like his power game off of one foot, and he just doesn't quite have the ability to explode off the ground on those plays the way he used to. Not a surprise given his injury history and age at this point. And then and you talk about having no guards. The third guard for the Hornets, this is the backup point guard and backup shooting guard right now, is Teo Maladon, who came back on a two-way. He was the last restricted free agent to sign, and he signed, a, of course, a, a, just another two-way because that's what his qualifying offer was. And he's actually the third guard off the bench for them and i thought he actually was wasn't terrible in this game but yeah he's playing ahead of of course frank nilakina is out with that leg fracture non-displaced and nick smith uh, hasn't really played at all for them bryce mcgowan's isn't playing so that's that's interesting uh, that uh, and i think the more i watch the hornets even as i noted in that atlanta game too i'm just like man it just seems so long ago that they had like the number six offense in the nba i mean that just it doesn't seem like they're gonna get anywhere close to that and uh, of course they don't miles bridges they shouldn't have miles bridges and they they're not gonna play pj washington at center nearly as much and you know kelly Oubre who was really good that year like there, there are a lot of things that have changed but it's if you're like, yeah, hey, they, it was pretty similar personnel. They had the number six offense two years ago. Why can't they get back to that? It's, no, it's not happening. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 
2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences, hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz, find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door, free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where, do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on, but then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed? And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house, get that 100 night trial they're 10 to 15 year warranty depending on the model and there's never been a better time to try a helix sleep mattress because they are offering 20 percent off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace easier slash capspace we talk about all the time here on the program that's helixsleep.com slash capspace this is their best offer yet i can attest to that since i've been working with them for nine years and it won't last long with helix better sleep starts now don't forget that slash capspace url to let them know that you came from us so the pistons on the second night of a back-to-back beat the chicago bulls quite handily uh, in the end it was a pretty ugly fourth quarter but the bulls uh, do have one victory this season and that took place uh, on friday night against the toronto raptors in a surreal surreal basketball game so i was watching I didn't watch the beginning of this game uh, live, but I watched the end of it and I immediately G-chatted Nate and I'm like, we're going to have to talk about the end of this game on the podcast at some point. And I ended up watching the whole thing. Um, my One of my broader kind of concepts of this, and this doesn't, this doesn't have to be dispositive like they're a bad team. Last year's Sacramento Kings squad... It felt like a guarantee that they were going to have an entertaining game because their offense was so much fun and so good. And their defense was flawed in ways that made the other team like be more engaging and be more fun. So like their games were just, they were fun. They were fun shootouts and Sacramento usually won them. They had a great home crowd. Toronto is kind of the anti-Kings in that respect, where not only is their offense really rough to watch a lot of the time, but they make the other team's offense rough to watch. So you just like that. This game was just a nasty slog. But one that I think I learned a lot from, and one of the stranger dynamics in it, which again, wait, wait can I can I take a gander at what you might have learned? Did you sure. learn that committing three shot fouls and backcourt turnovers and falling for pump fakes with one second left in the game that those are bad things that that could cause you to lose lose a seventeen point lead in the last five minutes of the game? Is that, is that one of the things that you're able to? Uh, they're they're bad things, this? but sometimes they don't cause you to lose as quickly as you should. <laughs> Um, which was one of the crazy. I mean, that's the crazy thing about this ridiculous comeback was like 
other than Alex Caruso and DeRozan getting fouled, the Bulls didn't even play well. No. <laughs> during the comeback. They that did. That's the crazy thing. It, it, they missed so many, like, wide open shots. I was watching. I was like, oh, yeah. Like, well, Kobe White's going to make this, obviously. Like, this, this is going to be that back, back-breaking three that gets it. I don't know. I think the only person to make a three might have been Caruso. The one in overtime? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I don't think, I don't know if they, yeah, it was incredible. They were 8 of 39 from three for the game, and they somehow came back. It, w- it was ludicrous. And one of the other memorable parts of watching the whole game was both teams had runs of 20-0 or greater. It was 20-0 for the Bulls in the first, first quarter, then 23-0 Raptors in the third to not only get back in it, but take the lead. And part of why the Bulls went on that run at the beginning is the Raptors started the game 1 of 15 from 3. They were overall, they were 9 of 36, the Bulls were 8 of 39. Another reason this game was gross. And something that I'm I'm just going to more drop a pin in for now because he also, he did have 51 points in a game I didn't watch was Zach Levine had really rough game in their first two. And like, he's absolutely... It's weird, right? Like he... He'll like have a bad game, and you hear this talk. Oh yeah, like he's struggling with a bad back. Like he might even play in the back to back, and then he has fifty one in the uh, fifty one of like their one oh three in the loss to Detroit the next it, night. And, and like what was so striking about DeRozan or sorry, about Levine, not DeRozan in in the game against the Bulls was how I the phrasing I used in my little write up as I was taking notes was like he was he barely registered. Like it wasn't even like oh man he's you know taking all these bad shots and doing it. He was like you kind of forgot. He was there. You forgot that he's supposed to be one of their centerpieces. Vooch was doing a fair amount, mostly positive, but some negative, and, and DeRozan was doing his thing. And then Zach Levine's just like disappeared. And then of course the next day he scores 51 points and they lose, which is which is bizarre. It's I mean, so I I, I the Raptors, so I mentioned that they not only did they have the 20-0 run that they gave up in the first quarter, they gave up a separate 14-0 in the second, and they're like they're getting their asses kicked. And then the rest of the game is pretty much all Raptors, and they go up 10 with 8 minutes to go, up 17 with 5 minutes to go. And if I hadn't known how the game ended, I wouldn't have believed it because it's just like everything going wrong, everything going wrong. And like OG Ananobi leaving with an injury with 7 minutes to go, that was certainly a factor on it. And one thing that Toronto really took advantage of in particularly the third and early fourth quarters was I thought the Bulls overreacted to some of the Scotty Barnes drives. Like, you know, Scotty Barnes can have some drives, and, and he had a successful offensive game. But they were conceding wide-open shots the Raptors. Now, the Raptors are terrible at shooting them, but they were, like, unnecessarily open. And that, mm. did, it did, like, Gary Trent Jr. had, and it's like, you know, the guys on the team, like, Trent Jr. had some, Schroeder had some wide-open ones. And, like, it's a worry for me with the Bulls moving forward, even if it didn't end up affecting their victory overall in this one but the ending of the game i mean i don't i don't know if we're going to go possession by possession but it was truly like the end of regulation was just astonishing oh yeah i guess i just like it truly had everything for the blown leads it missed wide open layups missed wide open threes turnovers in the backcourt they had two turnovers in the backcourt offensive foul in the backcourt trying to inbound the ball up by two uh or, or i think it was up up by one but the other team having no timeouts you yes just, if you just and 3.5 seconds left all you have to do is get the ball inbounds and the game is over uh Alex Caruso just like running down a bunch of offensive rebounds at the free throw line. Well, and I mean, uh, and, and missed free throws. And the another one is just bad process on offense. Like there were there was a possession. Oh, yeah. There was a possession with twenty seconds. I think it was twenty seconds to go, maybe a little bit more than that. And 
they really got nothing on the entire possession. Precious Jewett takes a deep two and misses it. And then the Raptors, like, a part of me wants to blame coaching, but also remember that, like, yes, they're leaning on Scotty Barnes sometimes. I mean, Siakam had the ball in his hands a lot during this one. This is not a young team, but, like, they did all these, like, silly, stupid mistakes. Like, we're, you're in a heavy advantage situation. You burn the whole clock on a possession, and then no one, you, you, no one gets back on defense. And you're just like, that's all you have to do. Like, you take the shot, you get back on defense, and you don't give the other team anything. And there, there's that. There's the culmination on the on the Crusoe shot that ended up giving the Bulls the win in overtime. But like the the lack of organization and the lack of like general competence for the Raptors was very dispiriting for me when you acknowledge that this isn't like last year's Rockets, for example. No, I think you're right, and. I mean, particularly, you could see it even the number of times that they tried to go one-on-one against Alex Crusoe in the last five minutes of the game. Sure. And over time, when you consider some of the other defenders that the Bulls have on the floor that they just didn't go after. Now, and the Raptors, like, not really having any pick-and-roll game with the center is not great. Then Pirtle had fouled out. That's part of why they wanted to acquire him, is to do more pick-and-roll. He was plus 20 in 19 minutes uh, when he was out there. Then Precious Achua also fouls out. Uh, He and Pirtle were big offenders, fouling DeMar DeRozan like crazy down the end of the game and then they go to Chris Boucher actually had some pretty big rebounds but I I guess we should just talk about how like because DeRozan he missed like two free throws in the last 10 seconds of the game right like they yeah they they should have won okay in the end yeah yeah so so they should have won so the ball so the the Bulls are down three the ball goes to DeRozan and he gets fouled for an and one. So like they weren't going to get the lead anyway, but then he misses the free throw. So that would have tied the game. So that's what led to the Raptors still being the, the Raptors still being ahead. So then the Bulls had to intentionally foul. They did. That was the one that was successful. They had the other one that was a failure. And then, so you're up, I think it was, you're up three with three and a half seconds to go. And remember the Raptors are, even with some of the guys that were out, a very tall team and athletic team. And so DeRozan's just like basically heaving a three, but he pump fakes before it. He gets, I believe it was Boucher and someone else. It was both. No, no. So, so it's Boucher. So this is the first, I just watched it. So I have it, I have it fresh in mind. Yeah. So he gets three foul shots and misses the last one of them. So they're still down one, 3.5 seconds left after Boucher, like went for the pump fake for a three. I mean, now DeRozan did hit two game winning three pointers back to back two years ago, but you still, you can't go for that. And then you saw what just happened. Then the Raps are trying to inbound the ball on the side. Caruso stands in front of Siakam. Siakam shoves him over offensive foul. All you needed to do even was just because the Bulls are out of timeouts. If you just throw the ball into the front court because the Raptors are out of timeouts too, you're fine there. Like just the one thing you cannot do is commit an offensive foul. And then they ran a great play where everyone was on the near side. They throw the sidelines out of bounds, lob all the way across the lane to DeRozan. And he's got Siakam on him. Pump fake. Siakam kind of went for it. He didn't jump, but he did like lean forward into him. And then I think it was Barnes who came over and just like landed on DeRozan. Like they both of them went for the pump fake. Either one of them could have fouled him. And then DeRozan still only hits one on two. They go into overtime and then wraps are up two with under 20 seconds to go. Well, I mean, originally they, they were up yeah. four with 35 seconds to go and then they gave up, gave yeah. up a basket. 
and Siakam tries to drive. You've probably seen the clip. Caruso strips him. Zach Levine runs the floor. Somehow, like the Bulls, even after the strip, like Kobe White is like, I can't remember if Vucevic on the floor. There's one other guy too. Is like, they didn't even like run the floor. No. But Levine drives. He actually made a great pass to the corner. Well, and so Caruso hit the three. Not only that, there are three. So there are more Raptors back on defense in transition than there are Bulls. There are only two Bulls that are in the front court when, when so Levine does a great drive. It's, it was sort of like a little kid's soccer game where everyone runs after the guy with the ball, but great job by Levine to recognize that there was somebody else who was there, and Caruso's just like wide open in the corner, and they they give up the wide open shot, and Caruso, to his immense credit, drills it, and the Bulls, the Bulls win a game that they both had no business winning and had no business losing, depending on which point in, what point in time we're talking about. It was surreal also surreal is how we're here again with patrick williams one of five in 13 minutes in the toronto game oh for three in 21 minutes in the detroit game and so there's already sort of a feeling like okay well is he better coming off the bench like well that'll like get him creating more than like no he just he doesn't have it right now he didn't come to an agreement on an extension he's shooting 28 percent from the field for the season and just has not had an impact and yeah when caruso is your backup like he's gonna have more impact than you are that's not a surprise but well what do you actually really been doing anything not on the patrick williams thread but i was you know watching bulls raptors i'm just like they're so much better when caruso's on the floor than kobe white and that's not to say kobe white's a bad player but it's just i think caruso brings more to those lineups then yeah. well Caruso is basically like a three four for them all I don't think True. it's really like a, a a question of like Caruso replacing Kobe White like that's gonna be Javon Carter or Desunmu yeah. probably I mean you could even just have Caruso it. replace Patrick Williams theoretically yeah, which is what they've been doing doing yeah they just haven't been starting that way yeah uh all right let's see what can we get to next here this is a great game actually on Friday night late Utah and the Clippers and I thought there are a lot of interesting themes that emerged from this one Utah wins it at the end Jordan Clarkson looked like he was completely running on fumes all game and then he hits a ridiculous fading three-pointer and then locks up Kawhi Leonard not once but twice in isolation on the last possession of the game where Kawhi tries to take him gets to the foul line doesn't have the shot gives it up gets the ball back and then takes like a really difficult fading three over Clarkson like the Jazz were giving up that switch and Kawhi who has been playing well so far and Paul George was also fantastic in this game uh, Kawhi was not able to beat him and then Russell Westbrook got the rebound didn't quite know how much time he had and ended up shooting like a fading uh 17 footer that airballed with the, maybe he could have gotten like one pass off or, or something it wasn't a great shot but you it's tough to really know how much time you have at that point when they, uh, one of the so, one of the yeah. wild things about this game was the possession disparity, which was not about one team turning the ball over and one team not. It was about Utah grabbing seventeen individually credited offensive rebounds. So that was um, that's thirty nine percent of your misses compared to just eighteen percent for the Clippers. Yeah, you watched this one too. Would you have uh, for some of your main takeaways? Um, I think that we've been getting. So it's worth noting this was a, a Clippers loss at, on the road to the Jazz, one of the two teams with home court that. The Clippers did very well in their other two games, even if their opponents were below below average. We'll see what San Antonio looks like, but San Antonio and Portland. But generally, like I think Kawhi Leonard and Paul George have looked the part. Like, would you agree with that? Yeah, I didn't watch today's game as they completely housed San Antonio. But yeah, I, th- I thought George in particular didn't have as good of a preseason as Kawhi. Kawhi hasn't really been getting to the foul line, but George. 
36 points, 15 of 15 from the foul line, 9 of 17 from the field in this one. So I, I thought that looked really good for him. Yeah, I, I mean, that's your number one takeaway is like those guys going to stay healthy and play well. And you know, are they maybe won't even know this until the playoffs. But if those guys are together, which they really haven't been through a full playoff since the 2020 bubble. If those guys are together, like, can they be, you know, two kind of top 10 players? Can Kawhi be a top five player? Like, if so, these guys are a threat, even with some of the other limitations that I think reared their head in this game that we're going to talk about. Well, and and one of the other, like, the limitations that that's such a key question for the Clippers is just what can they get from everyone else? And, And we harped a lot last year on how... Robert Covington and Nicola Batum and Marcus Morris and everybody else like all aged rapidly. And so it was like, can they fill this? And so last year, Westbrook filled some of those gaps, albeit on a different iteration of the Clippers because of all the injuries they were dealing with. Yeah, and, and I think it's worth noting, too, we were critical of them adding him. I mean, he did play much, much better, and I think he is still playing much, much better defensively. But the reason we were critical of it was we didn't know that Paul George wasn't going to play in the playoffs. Like exactly. About his fit with George and Kawhi and also a big center that they seemed like they were always going to play because they got Plumley and they were going to always play Zubats, too. Right. And one of the other things that struck me, I watched a little bit of Clippers Blazers and I was like, oh man, Paul's not really finding Robert Covington that much. Well, Robert Covington took five shots in that game. That's more shots that he's taken in the other two combined. And it's not like, oh, he's not playing. He's played 20. He took one shot in 26 minutes and gets the Spurs today. Yeah, I thought the Clippers did move the ball pretty well, particularly early, and were getting decent stuff despite the fact that they have no shooting on the floor in their starting lineup other than George and Leonard. And Terrence Mann is out like he was supposed to be in Covington's place, so that's actually even less shooting, but probably more defense. Uh, but but I thought like they're talking about moving the ball more, and uh, Russ had some decent passes, although he was overall his overall line was atrocious in this game. Two of four, five turnovers, four assists. Yeah. I'll, I'll note that although Russ did, was yeah. much more successful, at least box score wise. I didn't watch the game against the Spurs, where he had nineteen on eight of thirteen from the field against San Antonio. So it was interesting, though. Utah is playing really well. They got destroyed at home by the Kings on opening night, and they're up. 10 points, 15 points through the third. And so Ty Lu goes to breaking case of emergency, Nick Batum at center. He started with that group playing, also having Bones Highland on the floor, which I didn't love because you the idea is you got to at least have size up and down the lineup, right? If Russ is your smallest guy, then that group works a little bit better. So it's Batum, PG, Kawhi, Covington, and Russ. Uh, through a lot of this now it's worth noting particularly at the start of the game despite having Kawhi Leonard and Paul George that Lowry Markkinen is being guarded by Robert Covington and Lowry Markkinen went completely crazy in this game with 35 points 12 of 23 from the field 5 of 13 3 so you would you wish that one of those two guys if you're gonna play this way could guard Lowry Markkinen and that seems like it would be a good matchup for Kawhi individually though maybe you want him more kind of mucking things up off some of their non-shooters and of course the Jazz start really oddly as well with John Collins and Walker Kessler so you can't take away a a ton from that so they they get back into things uh, with that group and I'm still kind of thinking like man you know this is this probably is maybe their best lineup but they're not able to take it home in the end uh, although they were were playing pretty well uh, because uh, Clarkson had these heroics I thought Clarkson from the Jazz standpoint he's usually always able to create shots and he can get in the lane he was getting into the lane to the dotted line and just like couldn't get the separation to get 
get his floater off, which was a little concerning and wasn't really able to get much separation either. Even the shot that he hit was like a really tough fading three that like he wasn't able to create a good look. I'm kind of wondering like, is he a little tired from playing for the Philippines in the World Cup potentially? So that's, that'll be something to watch. I mean, we're still trying to kind of figure out the Jazz guard rotation. <laughs> Keontae George got more minutes in Phoenix. What were you going to say there? Well, I was going to mention Drew Clarkson just to put a stat on it. One for eight on twos against the Clippers. Yeah, there you go. I mean, and I, I think the Clippers can be a pretty good defensive team. You know, they had some struggles on the boards, as you mentioned, against Utah. And the Jazz were 16 of 41 from three. Although the Clippers made theirs also. The one thing I was critical of for Will Hardy is I felt like they should have put Walker Kessler back in and had him guard Russ against that group and because the Clippers started getting to the basket a lot more when they were spaced out and Will Hardy Kessler only played 21 minutes he was plus six and they just he basically never went back to him once just thinking like oh well they're going small we can't play him was like no like Russell Westbrook isn't going to shoot you can put him on Russell Westbrook like that's something that teams have had a lot of success with particularly when Russ was playing for the Lakers so that's that's something I think that Walker Kessler to me is one of their better players and particularly if you're like actually trying to go somewhere like Walker Kessler needs to figure out a way to play against those sorts of lineups and well, well, to have him guard Russell Westbrook who's not going to shoot would have been fine. Nate it's funny you brought up when Russell Westbrook was playing for the Lakers I was remembering when he was playing against the Lakers on the Rockets the stuff that the Lakers were doing at that point right right which yeah, then made of course the them trading for him one of the funniest things. Yeah so like Keontae George to me has been one of their better guards and, and it yeah. seemed like Will Hardy maybe kind of came to that conclusion the following night against Phoenix as they were getting blown out. It, Colin Sexton just hasn't really been a distributor at all. Chris Dunn ended up hitting a, a big bucket to get them back in and he was out there at the end for a lot of this against the Clippers. Ochai Baji only played 12 minutes in this one as well so it really seems like if none of these you know Taylor Horton Tucker I'm just like so just uninterested in in his stylings at this point him as like a starting point guard and just he just can't shoot and he was two of five from three in this one but he, he just is not dynamic enough to me like if it's at all close like you might as well just like go ahead and give Keontae George more of a chance and, and maybe that's what's going to happen at least offensively like he to me looks probably the most comfortable of any of these guys from what I've seen in the Jazz uh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I wholeheartedly agree. And like, I think part of the idea from Will Hardy might might have been play the players who have some equity with the team and who you have interest in. Remember, they, they acquired Horton Tucker deliberately about a little, over a year ago. But Keontae George, not only to me does he make more sense with the other players in their starting five, but I think he's been the best of them as well. You know, like if we're, if we're like saying, okay, Collins, Markin, and Kessler, Clarkson, they're maybe not set in stone, but all of them, but they're they're the four that you want out there. I like Keontae George best as the fifth, kind of whatever theory of it, unless you think you can do all of that and then you can have Chris Dunn's defense. But I think that's a little bit ambitious. And in this one, Dunn committed so many fouls that you probably couldn't have started him. So the Jazz, rather, the other thing that I thought was kind of weird is they went with Kelly Olenek, maybe just because they felt like they needed the spacing on John Collins, just because he's he was actually like the main matchup against Kawhi in a lot of these possessions, although they ended up having to do some switching with the, the Clippers going small. But I'm like, if you're going to play Kelly Olenek, like you could get away with playing Walker Kessler <laughs> defensively. Sure. But Olenek did hit a couple of big threes as the Jazz were able to get back uh, 
into control it in the end. So they do win it, uh, but then they got blown out, of course, at, at Phoenix with no Booker and Beal. But yeah, it does seem like the Jazz are going to kind of be closer this year to what maybe people would have thought they were going to be last year. And they're just a lot of pieces that don't really fit together. You know, John Collins, he'll get some rebounds. He's had five offensive rebounds in the last two games, and, and he helps their defensive rebounding, which has been an issue for this group, despite starting a seven-footer at small forward. But he's also four of 11, 13 points, one of five from three. And you just, you kind of see him out there. And it's like, all right, well, what is it you do here? Right? You would hope maybe you could get to him being the pick and roll roll man next to Kelly Olynyk on some of these second units, but they start together and it, it, they're playing him with Kessler. I mean, he's highly paid. Like, I guess he, they feel like he has to start, but, and he also provides more athleticism than the rest of their guys. Like he's probably maybe their best defender of like someone like Kawhi Leonard, which is not a great place to be <laughs> in, but he does still serve that role. But like, all right, is he posting up against mismatches? Like not really, like he's not really shooting it that well. Like you're not using him as a role man. They don't really have great power passing to find him as the role man like a trey young or something like that so i mean I, he still has some skills like obviously shooting it is going to be really important but this idea that like oh yeah well atlanta just wasn't using him right and now he's really gonna have a breakout he's gonna get used when it's like no i don't, I don't really think so like what <laughs> like is he just so dynamic of an offensive player that you're gonna run everything through him like what does he tell you does he want to get more post-ups like it just it doesn't seem like he it's just tough for a, a guy with that skill set i he deserves credit for the way he's tried to fit in and expand that skill set but he still has the core skill set that he has something else you, you brought it up briefly but the jazz as we're recording this last in defense including the glass and it is not opponent shooting like opponents are shooting build road now sample size is obviously important and they played both the kings and the suns albeit a suns team that did not have their full complement of players of course and the sun the suns have had their own you know they've been trying to get everything together without some of the best players so like it, it is it is a lingering question and I had these concerns about Utah offensively, but also believe that Will Hardy is a very good coach and like they've they've been successful overall offensively so far. But yeah, the defense is is something to think about. And the nice thing for Utah is if this year goes a little bit worse than expected, I don't think there are any really negative consequences for the franchise that makes their draft pick better. They have all this equity from other franchises and they have enough flexibility in the books moving forward that if you can properly, and properly is an operative word here, identify what is and is not working, they have plenty of capacity to fix it. So if this is, you know, like a worse than expected jazz season, I don't think that's the catastrophe that it could be for a lot of other franchises. Yeah, your only possible concern would be that they are going to want to renegotiate and extend Markkanen this summer. And if it's truly desultory, maybe he's not going to want to stay there. But it's also, if he gets traded somewhere, they won't be able to renegotiate and extend him. Like if he wants to actually get paid and get his extension rather than, and also just get fresh money and you can get an extra 20 million bucks next year that he couldn't get and then get extended so it would have to reach truly terrible levels i think for marketing to want to leave in that circumstance especially because you could just get the money and try to make your way out later on like i i would be just like we talk about how those 30 percent or sorry 50 25 percent um rookie scale extension offers basically it doesn't seem like they ever get declined the lucrative renegotiation extension it's harder to prove and to know but i'm going to be very surprised if those ever really get turned down 
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. So I watched Golden State and Houston today. 106-95. Golden State was largely in control, but in the third, early fourth, Houston got back into it, really on the strength of their defense. And I thought that they played a pretty darn good defensive game in this one and they have a lot of good defensive players there were golden state had a number of times where they just tried to beat their man one-on-one and create a shot and it was late in the clock and they just couldn't get a clean look you know chris paul trying to go one-on-one uh andrew wiggins jonathan kuminga and guys just like really couldn't get uh, clean looks now houston's offense i think is still gonna be bad you know i i was uh it was 57 47 at halftime and I, one of the, my big observations was Golden State just doesn't seem that concerned about Jalen Green. And I think he was 5 of 11 for 12 points with zero assists. But what really stuck out, and okay, he was their leading scorer. He wasn't totally inefficient. But he wasn't like driving the overall team to efficient offense with zero assists. And moreover, they just weren't really reacting. And they're just like, okay, you know, we'll let him go to the rim. We'll play the pick and roll two on two. If our center is there, let's see if he can finish. And he flubbed a lot of these like left-hand finishes where he's kind of out of control off of one foot. Or or maybe he'll create a mid-ranger. Maybe he'll make it. Maybe he won't. But he wasn't, Jalen Green was not doing anything that truly was stressing out a defense like Golden State, which is disappointing to me at, at this point. You would hope that he would start to emerge in his third year, and there's still time. We've only been three games in, but this Houston offense looked pretty bad. Fred Van Vliet failed to score from two. Uh, he was better, I thought, in the game against the Spurs, which we'll talk about a little bit. Uh, Alperin Shingun, he's been kind of their leading assist man, uh, although you know you, he's kind of considered the baby Jokic. Like, you watch him compared to Jokic just from a passing standpoint. It's just it's not even close. Like, Shingun can kind of operate through the elbows, but like he doesn't make the quick decisions that Jokic does. He's not like in control. He's younger, of well, course, too, but and he's a very good passing center. Like, his floater, his hook shot games look pretty good, but... Uh, but and I thought actually defensively, like he wasn't bad. I thought he executed pretty well. Steph hit a couple of crazy shots in the fourth when he made four threes in a row and basically took the game from 88-88 to over. Well, Nate, um, I like that you, you brought you brought up the mini Jokic thing with Shangun because something that I've thought of, and I, I'm guessing I've mentioned it on the pod before, is that the Jokic imitators could end up similar to the Draymond at center imitators where the margin between the player in question and the other team's player in question just makes the whole experiment a little bit moot 
because you just you you have you need that brilliance in order to make the whole thing work. And so I think it's funny to bring that up in a game where they play against the Warriors, who of course are the original like one of the original ideas that brought brought to mind for me. Well, and you, I'm glad you mentioned Draymond. He started. This was his season debut. He was on a minutes limit. He played four five minute bursts uh, essentially. Chris Paul came off the bench for the first time in his career, and I was pleased that that's the direction that Golden State chose to go. I mean, particularly when you just look at what the numbers were for that starting lineup that Golden State has traditionally gone to over the last couple of years, it's been extremely effective. Now, Draymond Green looked a bit corpulent, probably the most I've ever seen him. And it had kind of been some rumblings that that was the case. And I'm sure missing a month uh, with a sprained ankle didn't really do him any favors. Like, it's going to take a while for him to work back into shape, he had his usual complement of absolutely atrocious turnovers. It's kind of funny, actually, Danny, that with Chris Paul playing in the Draymond role, just how much better Chris Paul actually is at that role than Draymond offensively. Sure. Because Chris can actually probe. He can just create different passing angles because he's more of a threat with the ball. And he's just better as a passer than Draymond, like moving the ball quickly. And this is this is a Draymond who's been in this offense for a while. But he doesn't turn it over the way that Draymond does. And because he's able to be more of a threat, probe with his dribble more, get the ball from side to side with the dribble and set guys up. Like it is actually pretty noticeably noticeable to me already that I think like Chris just as like a passer now Draymond because of his ability to to roll that adds a different element in terms of his interaction with Steph but I mean and those are two of the most complimentary teammates of all time and of course Draymond's defense is uh, you know way better than Chris Paul's although Chris Paul's defense I think has actually been quite good so far for Golden State but that that stood out to me of like wow like this guy is like even on another level like from Draymond well and what that could theoretically open the door I'm not saying as a starting or closing lineup is the idea that you could go with a different theory at the four, and that theory could be Jonathan Kaminga. So some sort of lineup involving Paul, Kaminga, and maybe even Steph Curry still in it. Yeah, this wasn't a good one for Kaminga. Uh, he had four fouls and three turnovers, and it took a couple of bad shots. He had one just awful foul at the end of the first half, or maybe might have been the first quarter, I can't remember. Uh, I will say for Golden State, Gary Payton the second, and uh, yeah, he hit three or four from three, including two above the break ones that were you know pretty difficult that you don't expect from him. But uh, he was plus 13 in 19 minutes. Like He looks like he's back to being like an absolute difference maker at guard, and maybe he's not doesn't have quite the same bounce as a finisher as he did two years ago for golden state but he's really helped like he's making like when he was on like Jalen green like he just even if he's beaten he's like blocking his own man shot from behind at the basket poking it away he's an amazing health this guy is one of the best defensive guards i've ever seen like and it's great to see him back at that level uh which he wasn't quite there physically when he returned he also had three steals in this game plus 13 and yeah so moody and kaminga didn't play as well chris paul still hasn't had the touch with the jump shot uh, particularly from three but he was 8.7 assists plus 22 he played 27 minutes and steph only had to play 31 and they're like just left stuff on the bench for like half of the first half because well, and, Chris Paul just like had it rolling. It was and, great. I mean, just the do. I mean, you you there was this stretch for years that I talked about. It. I I can't remember what, if that was. E, I think that was EPM where like Curry was leading the league every single year because the Warriors couldn't do anything when he was off the floor. And then you have a game like this that the Warriors win by eleven. The Warriors are outscored in Curry's minutes and then outscored their opponent 
in the minutes he sets. Huge difference. Yeah. And I mean, this is, I think this is a really big two game stretch for Golden State. And perhaps we'll look back and they'll be sailing to 50 wins and we won't remember this. And it'll seem like this was inevitable, but they lost their first game at home. They didn't look great. Uh, and they're also like, Draymond has been out. He's going to take a long time to, uh, I guess I shouldn't say round to unround into form. Round out of, (laughs) uh, yeah, unround into shape, I guess, I guess we should say. Uh, Kevon Looney looked, uh, looked better in this game and also like they weren't having him switch as much now when he plays next to dream on they're more comfortable with that also when it's a little different going against the kings and the suns offensive players compared to the rockets and i think my biggest takeaway from the rocket list i thought amen had a pretty good game he was plus two he hasn't been as dynamic. Like he hasn't really been running pick and roll. Uh, I was just uh, hopeful that he could do a little bit more. He's kind of he's been actually very aggressive shooting the ball. He was one of seven in that opening against the Magic, but he's one of two in this one. He hit another elbow jumper. Like his jumper, even the fact that he's taking this many, like I like that he's willing to take it at least. You know, he's not Ben Simmonsing it, and it looks more advanced than it has so far. Uh, and, and I thought he had some pretty good defensive plays also. Reggie Bullock, interestingly, playing very little. I thought he would actually be a pretty important component, but he only played six minutes. He's 0 of 2 from 3. Uh, Jay Sean Tate, good individual defender, but he's just having to play a lot of 3 right now. Like, we'll, we'll see whether his jump shot ever comes along. But they were 9 of 33 from 3. They just don't really have the shooting. Jabari hit a couple of 3s on the move where he was kind of stepping back. Good footwork, but he hasn't looked quite as dynamic as you would hope. And that's the big takeaway to me is, just that Jalen Green, Jabari. I mean, a man, it's a little bit different because he's a rookie. But like Fred Van Vliet, Dylan Brooks, like I think those guys are going to come here and do kind of what they were signed to do. Fred didn't shoot it well today, but and I think Shangun offensively, like he's looking pretty good. I think he's within his capabilities. He's looking better as a defender than he has in past years. Like I think Ime is getting these guys to defend. They shouldn't have lost that Spurs game either. And I think they've been they've competed defensively in a way that they hadn't. But there are also points where you're just like okay you know they're just missing a bunch of shots their their transition defense didn't look good in the second quarter they're kind of hanging their heads missing shots and you're just like yeah i mean they they can hire ima yudoka they can sign these guys a free agency like Jalen Green, Jabari Smith, like these guys are going to have to come through if this team is really going to take a, a, a step to be like a decent team this year. The young guys at some point just have to be good enough. And, you know, whether that's Jabari or Jalen Green or Amen. And if it takes them more time, then that gets awkward because the contract structures and everything else. And so not it, it's too early to pronounce it. But, yeah, it was frustrating in their their loss to San Antonio. I didn't really get into this game until super late. Wembenyama had some big, big buckets, but the idea that like Houston, they they missed a ton of shots in this one too. Had some really bad turnovers. The Spurs had plenty of their own. This was, I, I think, the teams combined for eighteen steals in this con. But they did go to overtime. But yeah, I, I agree with you. This game, Houston absolutely could have and arguably should have won. Yeah, Wembenyama had a really tough push shot on the baseline that tied it up at the end of regulation, and they finally went with Trey Jones rather than Sohan, but Sohan actually hit two free throws with that crazy one-handed style where he just picks the ball up with one hand and never puts the left hand on it uh, to kind of ice 
the game for San Antonio. Zach Collins actually got into the post in the overtime for another one of those hook shots. I actually like called the play for him. I remember I was as I was deleting some of the information from our outline for the 15 and 60 and putting our notes in, I noted complaining that they're running ATOs for Zach Collins post ups. It's like part of like how they're the Spurs are tanking. And no, they're uh it's actually been reasonably effective. I was hopeful that the Spurs could be pretty good defensively. I didn't get a chance to watch their game against the Clippers when they just got completely housed today. Uh you know, I thought they were decent against the Rockets but the Rockets are uh, a very flawed offensive team. At one point, the Rockets in the in the overtime, they run a play for a couple of plays for Jalen Green. They run a play for Dylan Brooks, get three straight turnovers, don't even get a shot on goal. And Ime is like, all right, fuck it. I'm just running pick and roll with Fred Van Vliet and Alperin Shingun every time. And they actually got a, a few better shots. That way, Shingun just completely, mercilessly dunked all over Zach Collins from the dotted line. Like, Shingun can actually uncork some big dunks if he gets ahead of steam. Uh, going back to his days in Turkey, and that was that was a pretty big destruction. So I, I we'll lock in more on the Spurs. I think they're playing on Tuesday. We'll probably do that game for a gamer. Uh, so not a ton more to say uh, about San Antonio at this point, although kind of disputing that they just got completely blown out by the Clippers tonight. One twenty three to eighty three, and that Oof. that Sohan at at uh, point guard lineup. He was zero for two. Both of them threes and negative thirty with four turnovers in well, two minutes. So, so need a wild stat related to the Clippers become part in part because of that even though it filters out garbage time, clean the glass net rating, the Clippers are number one despite having lost a game this year. They're two and one and are oh, number yeah. one. They're they're plus twenty one point yeah. four. Indiana's number two at plus seventeen point eight. Yeah, and they, I mean, Portland lost again. They're uh, a deserved zero and three so far. We'll, we'll probably talk about them a little bit more. And then, and by the way, so par- too, paralleling yeah. sort of the Clippers, and we just talked about this team. Utah second to last in net rating despite having a win. They're negative thirteen point nine. Yeah. Yeah, because they've been blown out twice as well. Uh, Let's close for today on Kings-Lakers. I know you were in transit, so you didn't catch this one, but uh, I caught the fourth quarter. I thought it was pretty interesting. Demonis Sabonis fouls out, gets his sixth foul, going over the back of Anthony Davis, going for an offensive rebound. Then De'Aaron Fox sprains his ankle, stepped on the foot of Gabe Vincent, and looked like he turned it pretty badly. He actually came back in, and I was I was like, oh, well, this is going to be one of those circumstances where he's able to play, but then it's going to swell up on him. And game ends up going into overtime. Kings blow a seven-point lead in the last 90 seconds of the game. And Fox, he was, ankle was clearly bothering him, but he hit a mid-ranger, hit a three over Anthony Davis as well. And then D'Angelo Russell actually got the Lakers back into it with a, an ISO three after they had missed four straight threes. I thought the most interesting aspect of this one was the Laker offense down the stretch. LeBron and AD pick and roll. When Sabonis was in, Mike Braun was switching up a lot of different things. He had Sabonis switch onto LeBron and LeBron took a couple of missed threes there. And they were spreading the floor too. Austin Reeves was having a terrible game. So it was Gabe Vincent, D'Angelo Russell and Torian Prince in there. So that's three pretty decent shooters around LeBron AD pick and roll. That's what we've been saying. Hey, get some shooting around these guys. And wasn't that effective, honestly. Uh, They also, the Kings did some good stuff like pre-switching, keeping Sabonis on the back line, guarding Torian Prince. So they gave him some different looks. But it wasn't, it didn't look like that dynamic necessarily. Like LeBron just wasn't really getting in the lane. He was over his minutes limit uh, again, by the way, as he was to barely beat 
Phoenix on Thursday and they had a comeback where Phoenix just like got like Kevin Durant was plus 18 and they lost like a close game down the end because they just couldn't do anything when he was out with no Booker and no Beal. So this whole thing of LeBron being on a 30 minute limit every night, I, we'll see, right? This is another one that they chased and then that went into overtime as well. But I thought that was interesting that like against the Kings, not a great rim protecting team. Now LeBron did set up some wide open threes that just got missed by Vincent. Russell missed a couple and then he hit a tough step back. So it goes into overtime and De'Aaron Fox, I think he missed a, a three and I don't know whether he made the call or Mike Brown did, but it basically was like, no, I'm going to take you out with, so there are no Fox, no Sabonis and Malik Monk is basically their point guard and Kevin Herter had a couple of big rebounds. He had a huge three and Kings end up winning it in overtime, uh, despite the fact that they like went small, no center with Sabonis. Like that wasn't great. LeBron got a tying layup off of that in regulation. Uh, they tried JaVale and they took him out again in the, the overtime. So they were kind of struggling on what to do without Sabonis, but they're still a really explosive offensive team with their shooting, even without Fox and without Sabonis. And they were able to outscore the Lakers in overtime again. Just a weird scheduling thing. Um, I was thinking of, you know, I like looking at looked at the team's schedule and like, oh, what can what can we learn? The Lakers played the Magic twice this week, and if they were like, why have the Lakers played the Magic twice this week? That's their whole season. So they only played them twice. That that yeah. that's done. And no, the the game in the middle of that is the Clippers. So they play the Clippers at home. I'll probably keep a close eye on that one. That one's on Wednesday. Yeah, and for Fox, best player on the floor, 37 points, 14 to 24. He was going through a ridiculous fourth quarter before he sprained the ankle. And he had the same uh, against Golden State the other day. Sure. But that was in when they were way down and stuff went crazy against them with, with 41 points on Friday night. But I, my suspicion is that Fox is going to miss a couple of games now. Uh, he wasn't able to finish this one, I think, just because it went on so long. It just started to swell up on him. Like, he couldn't even walk off the floor, basically. And he like he was down for a long time. He went out, then came back in after they retaped it. But it seemed like this is one of these things where, like, it was going to swell up by quite a bit. And, you know, I could see him missing, like, a week or so, if not more than that. Which, uh, that could be big if he misses their first in-season tournament game. That's, uh, that's, we'll be talking about that, right? I mean, you, could, you, you only have four games to try to qualify for the quarterfinals. And you lose one of them, especially against a team that's not that good then you could be out of it so uh they also play at golden state on wednesday again the bi as well and uh yeah we just got we'll catch up on some more stuff some news some of the other teams we haven't talked about yet uh tomorrow in the early afternoon so we'll talk to you all then at bet 365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every basket every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. 